Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Hey, guys. Welcome to the Birth Story Podcast. We're talking about sex today, all the things. I sat down with Colin, my work partner, and she's so good at talking about sex. Sometimes I blush, but I did my very best. And I am talking to Erica Smith, who's a sexuality educator out of Philly, She's fascinating, and she's the founder of Purity Culture Dropout. So we talk about the role that purity culture plays in sex. We talk about losing our V-card. We talk about dry humping. We talk about arousal. We talk about how to talk to your kids about sex. We talk about being pregnant. We talk about what happens after you have a baby and you're like, kind of your sex drive goes down and initiating conversations that can be awkward with your partner. So we get into a lot today. Are you ready? Let's get to it. What does a contraction feel like? How do I know if I'm in labor? And what does a day of labor look like? Wait, is this normal? Hey, I'm Heidi. My best friends call me Hydes. I'm a certified birth doula, host of this podcast, and author of Birth Story, an interactive pregnancy guidebook. I have supported hundreds of women through their labor and deliveries, and I believe every one of them and you deserves a microphone and a stage. So here we are. Listen each week to get answers to these tough questions. Birth Story, where we talk about pregnancy, labor, deliveries, where we tell our stories and share our feelings. And of course, chat about our favorite baby products and motherhood. And because I'm passionate about birth outcomes, you will hear from some of the top experts in labor and delivery. Whether you are pregnant, trying desperately to get pregnant, or you just love a good birth story, I hope you will stick around and be part of this birth story family. Okay, just a little something before we get started today. And that is, what happens if you don't take Birth Story Academy? So like, let's say you're pregnant. That's why you're listening to the Birth Story podcast. And you're preparing for a hospital birth that's upcoming. And of course, this podcast gives you tons of free information, right? But like... Do you really understand the stages of labor? How to know when you're in labor? What if you have to have an induction? What about a cesarean section? What about all of the decisions that you have to make once you get to the hospital? So you get there and then they put you in triage. Birth Story Academy walks you through all the things that happen, like that rapid fire with like monitoring and blood work and questions and IV ports and do you want an epidural? I don't know. Do you? In Birth Story Academy, we literally break down all of those decisions, pros, cons, risks, benefits, intuition, and like we get into it. We make birth plans, we do birth visions, we listen to birth affirmations and parenting affirmations, and like at the end of it, like you know exactly what's going to happen when you go into labor and when you get to the hospital. What's going to happen after you give birth? Newborn care preferences, how to take care of your baby. So I guess what I'm getting at is if you're not in Birth Story Academy, what's your plan, right? Like I want to be your teacher. 
I want you to come join me in Birth Story Academy and let me walk you through all of the decisions that you have to make if you're having a hospital birth and how to have body autonomy and how to have informed consent and informed refusal. Like, I'm going to teach you and your partner, if you have one, everything that you need to know about birthing in a hospital so that you can walk in that door with some swagger, with some confidence, like wash that anxiety away because you learned everything you needed to learn in Birth Story Academy and you are ready to crush that birth, right? Okay, let's do it. And let's get to this episode. Ooh, what a cool picture. Hey, Erica. Hey. We like your background picture. Oh, me in New Orleans? Yeah, that's pretty. <laughs> Thanks. Mm-hmm. So this is my work partner, Colin. She's going to be doing that. Hi, Colin. Nice How to meet you. How are me. you? You too. I just creeped all your socials. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big, I, hope, I, like, I hope you like what you saw. Yeah, I do. I want to sign up for your class. The one you're doing, oh. the LGBTQ plus one. I was like, even though I've been in that community for a long time, I was like, I want you to share that education with the world. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> So Colin is like super sex positive and she's taught me a lot about like being pansexual in the LGBTQ community and she's really helped me navigate having a trans spouse over the Mm -hmm. last three and a half years. So on that note, welcome to the Birth Story Podcast, Erica. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) And Colin and I are going to be your hosts today. And we prepared some questions and pulled our community. It's a birth story podcast. So it's mostly like pregnant persons or people that love birth stories. And so think parents, you know, and so we have some questions from them. But then we also want to have this healthy discussion with you about your expertise with purity, culture, dropout. So first things first, this platform is your platform. Okay, so we'll ask you a couple of questions that pertain to the birth story audience, right? And having sex like while you're pregnant or when you have babies at home or after a loss, that kind of thing. Um, But we really want to just hear a lot from you today about why you do what you do. And uh, let's get started. Okay, sounds good. Cool. All right. Well, let's start with an intro. So Erica Smith. Can you just share a little bit about who you are, your bio, your background, and why everyone loves you? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So my name is Erica, as you just stated, and I am a sexuality educator, and I have been working in this field for a little bit over 20 years now. I started with my interest in sex ed when I was a college undergrad and started by like planning sex education events with my friends. And then that eventually turned into a career. So I have worked um, with all different kinds of populations. I started out working in reproductive health care, and then I worked for a very long time with young people in juvenile detention, providing them with HIV prevention, sex education, advocacy. In particular, they were young people that were LGBTQ, often very high risk for unwanted sexual health outcomes. I also uh, work to support trans youth and their families, and that's something that's been part of my work for about 20 years. And what I've done in the last few years is left my full-time job to create a sex ed business that I run myself. And as part of that, I started the Purity Culture Dropout Program. And that is kind of a 
umbrella term for a bunch of work like online classes, individual sessions, support groups, other offerings that all address the fact that so many folks who were raised in extreme purity culture got so much shame and silence around sex and not any actual information that is useful, that is queer inclusive, that is trauma informed, that is medically accurate. And that is what I'm, that is my, my mission at this point is providing that kind of education to people who were denied it intentionally through a lens of this is all very normal and I don't want you to feel weird about it. And I think that knowing how your own bodies work is a, a right that all of us have as humans. So yeah, that's that's why I do what I do. I get very worked up about it. There's no reason to keep that information from people. Yeah. Ah, we're so grateful for you and what you do because even at 43, you know, I find myself in a new stage of exploration, right? Like it started very young and then at every decade, I feel like it starts to change. Like this evolution of of our own sexuality and getting to know our bodies and what we want and like and need, especially as hormone shifts. So we're here for it today, Erica, and we've got like a lot of good questions for you. Okay. I love, I love rapid fire. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I want to, but the first thing I need to do is I need to like back up. Like how does one in college, like just be, you know, get interested in this? Like where, like, you know, you're like, oh, it started in college 20 years ago. But like in college, I was just having, I was just having sex. I wasn't talking to people about how to have sex with everyone. So how does, like, do you know what I mean? Were you doing both? Like, how did this come about? So I, from the earliest memories I have identified as a feminist and it's not anything that like was intentionally taught to me. Um, I mean, I have a very like feminist minded mother, but it's not like she sat me down and was like, this is what I believe. It's just, I don't know, just things I picked up from her. But when I was a young, like a teenager, I was sexually active with my boyfriend and it was a wonderful relationship. It was a very like loving, very good communication, very respectful. And I found that I kind of became the the go-to friend to talk to about sex. And we all talked about sex. We were, you know, teenage girls who were a lot of us having it for, you know, a lot of it <laughs> for the first time. And I remember we would sit there at our lunch table in high school and talk about sex. And I was probably more interested in it than, than most, just in like the actual real information about it. So by the time I got to college, I had decided to major in women's studies and the classes that I liked the most were the ones that had to do with women's health and wellness. And, you know, now it's called women, gender and sexuality studies, but at Penn state in 1997, it was called women's studies. Um, and, you know, a lot of the material that I really loved was when we would sit in classes and talk about reproductive justice and, you know, everything that had to do with, with, sexual health and sexuality. And that's when I was like, I really like this. Um, I think that's kind of where I, where I intend to work. So my first job out of college was actually at an abortion clinic in town where I was a counselor and educator. And I feel like I learned so much at that job that it felt like I was still in school. It was just, it taught me so many things. And once I was kind of in the reproductive health field, I just 
stayed, knew it was my thing, and then uh, signed up for grad school, which I was doing in, I guess it was the early aughts. It was the Human Sexuality Studies graduate program at Widener University, which just happened to be in the Philly suburbs, and I was in Philadelphia, so that was very lucky. Um, it's, as far as I know, still the only graduate school where you can get a degree, an education degree in how to be a sex educator. So it all worked out. Like there it was. There I was already in the field, so I just kept going. Okay. Well, let's dial it oh back God, a so little excited. bit. I know. So, Colin, when did you when did you lose your virginity, oh, or when well, did you have your first fun, like, sexual experience? Right. <laughs> no, I was fun story. So it was I made that myself and I was raised in purity culture also so like my family is southern baptist evangelical i had a promise ring the whole ordeal and i made myself a promise and this is like really weird but i was like i have to be 16 my legs have to be shaved it has to be with someone that i'm in love with and is in love with me we can't be under the influence because i was smoking a lot of pot then and it has to be in the bed because and i knew i for some reason i had this weird realization i was like if i'm ever telling one of my kids the story about how i lost my virginity i want to make sure that i felt empowered and in control and it was a decision i was comfortable and safe with so that's i was it was five days before my 16th birthday <laughs> so i made everything else but that <laughs> and I'm you were so in bed you had such intention <laughs> Even, you know, especially for someone who was raised just to be told, don't do it, don't do it, don't do mm -hmm. it, that you put so much thoughtful intention into how you could have an empowering first experience. Because that's something that, you know, people don't teach us. When I, so I was, I went to Christian school. I was in and out of public school. And then I finished out through Christian school. And I remember like we had abstinence only education and all that. And like, by the way, you're like my idol. I want to be, I want, cause I want to do what you do eventually at some point. Cause it really is something that like, you know, Heidi, you were saying that you're like self-pleasure throughout and what you want sexually throughout the decades has changed. Right. And like a big part of that, I think is the more we mature, the more we are able to communicate what our needs are. And so like, I learned about sex when I was four years old and walked in on my parents and I'll never forget it. We were at the beach and my dad drew pictures in the sand for us of what this experience was. That's kind of incredible. <laughs> I've heard so many stories in my life, but that is a new one. <laughs> and like me and my brother were there. My brother was like running around and you'd think as a boy, he would have been like super interested, but I was like sitting there laser focused on everything. And it's a big thing. It's just like with what Heidi and I do, but if there's not an education piece, like I remember an abstinence only class, like, and I was always the girl that people came and talked to about sex. Cause I don't give a shit. Like my dad is very open. My mom is, they've always been like, just come talk to us. Cause we'd rather keep you safe and keep you feeling comfortable and empowered then make you feel shame right and so that's the right approach yeah and it's one of those things where that's when people you know kids aren't walking around with untreated stds aren't getting exams that they shouldn't get so like but yeah my first experience while it was very brief um was <laughs> rather wonderful actually oh i love it amazing. the reason i want to kind of like start here and kind of simmer for this audience is because of what Colin and I do for a living, right? So we are birth doulas. Colin has specialized as a fertility doula, 
part of being a birth doula means that we walk our clients through loss as well as accepted termination. So like, I don't really like the term like abortion doula, right? Like just doulas, you know, an emotional and physical support person. But when it comes to pregnancies, we're supporting people through wanted and unwanted pregnancies and loss and fertility. And so all of this ties in. Is that what full spectrum doula? Yeah. Okay. Yep. That's exactly. I like that term. Yep. So a full spectrum doula, the the one piece of that that I do not participate in is the end of life. So some people will um, like be an end of life doula also for people in hospice care and stuff. I haven't done any of that work. Colin, have you? No, I'm too emotionally fragile to do that. Yeah. We got to so. know what our strengths are and <laughs> yeah, what we I, can and can't do. <laughs> I don't feel like I would serve well in that situation. So, yes. Yeah. So I was going to say, but a true full spectrum would see life through death, basically, mm-hmm. and, and everything in between. So, Erica, can I turn that question on you? Like, when was really? your first sexual experience? Yeah. So I was... I feel like I was a late bloomer, not in the sex realm, but like I didn't get my period until I was 14. And that's unusual. You know, I know a lot of people that my friends were getting it when they were 12 and I got it when I was 14. And at that point I was like, where's my period? I like wanted it, which is Mm -hmm. (laughs) funny to think back that I was like, please. And I didn't even kiss anybody until I was 15, but I met my soon-to-be boyfriend the summer I turned 16 and he was he was so wonderful and he is still so wonderful he's someone that I consider one of my closest friends he also lives in Philly he has a wonderful wife he's like my brother but back in the summer of 1995 he was it was like punk rock love like (laughs) we bonded (laughs) over our shared like interest in music and oh my god it was it was great and he was the kindest sweetest person so we started experimenting sexually with each other in a very organic way so we didn't do the like p and b p and v big event for months we did everything other than p and v big event so we really got to like understand pleasure in each other's bodies and we you know we're just trying things out and I was so responsible that I even went to the family planning clinic and I got on hormonal birth control before I had PNB sex because I knew that I did not want to get pregnant. I wasn't even going to take that risk. So when I lost my actual, you know, PNV virginity, I was on the pill, had, we used condoms also. And I think we even used like spermicide because they gave that to me at the clinic. <laughs> no pregnancy was going to happen to me. Yeah. And it was a very, it was a very loving experience. Like we planned the day. It's like, okay, I've been on the pill for a week. So then we can do it on Sunday at your mom's house. Um, and I totally remember it was like Christmas time and his mom was downstairs making Christmas cookies. And we like were upstairs and we had our first like, P and V sex and it was wonderful. And then we just did it a lot after that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's really fun. The reason I want to start here though, right? Is because one of the things we talk about on the birth story podcast a lot is that like your birth matters because you will remember every detail of it for the rest of your life. 
Oh, yeah. And are, it's so similar, right? Like, I can say, what was your first sexual experience? And Colin is a four-year-old, right? Walking in our, in our parents. Like, <laughs> these are, like, our sexuality and, like, the introduction to it is something that any person I could, you ask on the street can tell you, you know, like, if anyone needs help, you introverts with dinner table conversations, you know, at a party, ask people about their birth and their first sexual experience. And, like, boom, all of the yeah. memories come flooding in, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'll tell my own story then, since I'm kind of hosting over here, but, um, and I'm going to turn the question on me, but, you know, mine was when I was 14 years old and I didn't think any, so I didn't have any purity culture upbringing, you know, my parents would take us canoeing and say like, you know, this is where you find God. What I was taught about sex was like very early on, like maybe fourth grade, I think is when that conversation happened. So I was the youngest of my older siblings. And I just remember it was, um, I didn't ask questions. So I was actually told before I had curiosity. So it was like something my mom sat me down and was like, you're probably going to have your period soon. And this is what this means. And this is what sex is. And so, and so I don't know if that's a lot of, I never had curiosity. Like I just kind of was told and she had a notebook that she wrote and drew the pictures kind of like in the, um, sand, but my mom had like a yellow legal pad, legal pad, you know, that she like drew pictures and wrote a story. And then I was given this book, our bodies ourselves. And I remember like, you know, Bush seeing Bush and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to, I'm going to do um, so much Bush. It's the so time that the seventies Bush in that book. <laughs> yes. hey, Bush is coming back though. But like for a 10 year old who hadn't <laughs> gone through puberty, I was like, that's what my vagina is going to look like. You know, like it doesn't look like anything. You know? Who knew? <laughs> like back then it was like nice and smooth and nothing on it. So there, are, but this is the point. There are these vivid memories for each of us, right? Yeah. Like, we can we can just remember it so well. And I don't know why that is. Do you know, Erica, in your studies? Like, why is your first sexual experience so right there in your brain? I I think for a lot of reasons. For one, it is it is typically a taboo subject. And for some reason we we get that sense early because of the way people act around us. So when we see something sexual as a kid, we're like, we know like, ooh, that like, it's very interesting to us. Yeah. And so I think that it's like, we sense that it's a, a big deal and a taboo topic. And then being able to remember our first sexual experience, that's, it's a milestone. Like it's a rite of passage and it's a very big deal, even you know, no matter what age you are. I work with a lot of folks who have not had a partnered sexual experience and they're well into adulthood. And they, you know, are like waiting to do it, hoping that it will happen soon. It's like so much emphasis is put on it. Also, because of this very thing you're talking about, because of how important these memories are to us, one of the things I have every one of my private clients do is write their whole sexual history out starting with what are your earliest memories? What did you remember about sex when you were a kid? What did you learn about it? What did your family say about it? 
what was it like when you got your first period or do you remember the first time you like were aware of your genitals and most people have instant answers for that stuff and bringing that stuff out and kind of dragging it into the light in adulthood is a great opportunity to reflect on like why some of us are deeply fucked up about it or why we learned some things that are just you know like oh you touched yourself and then you got screamed at there we go like let's talk about how that made you feel and how touching yourself as a child is a perfectly normal behavior so dredging up those memories can be super useful in like terms of just kind of placing ourselves um in our whole sexual history yeah i'm it's so really important that you ask that heights just because it's so interesting to me we all like societal norms play such a big deal on our first sexual experience and i was thinking about it and i was like i remember vividly when i lost my virginity i have no idea when i had my first orgasm and it's like very interesting to me because it's like it's always placed on the event you know what i mean if like i lost this and i had this milestone and these things happen but like as far as my pleasure goes i don't even remember when i mean i remember i remember (laughs) like you know i mean like i can tell you the date that i lost my virginity the color of the sheets all these things Mm -hmm. but it's like when and i think that's a big testament to like female pleasure and all of those things too that it's not typically a priority you know, I had a nanny that was super religious and she told me, she was like, well, God gives you wet dreams. And I was like, I'm not waiting for that. After I'd had my first <laughs> orgasm, I was like, I was like, that timeline will not do for me. So, you know, I just think it's fascinating. It is. I'm so glad that you said that because I do remember my first orgasm and then like sexual exploration of my body. And that was in middle school. And that mm-hmm. was definitely by myself. Same. 100%. Like, it was like, you know, laying in bed one night. There, And it wasn't dictated by anything. It wasn't like no one had told me really about you should do this or you shouldn't do this. It was just like, hmm, that feels good, so I'll keep going. And then it was like, oh, you keep going. And then it was like, whoa, this thing happens. And then it feels so good that it suddenly can't feel good anymore. That is how yeah. I, in my child brain, understood what was happening. I'm like, I do this thing at night. It feels so, so good. And then there comes a point when like the good feeling, like it's like too much. (laughs) That was, it peaks just like a contraction. It peaks (laughs) and then it, and then it kind of comes down and then you don't want, sometimes it's a little too sensitive at the, you know, for it. Um, but I also remember then feeling that, that feeling for the first time that I had felt with myself with a partner and I was in seventh grade on a golf course his name was Chris (laughs) and we were like making out on the golf course and it was like hard on between my legs on my clit with like boob action and I was like what's happening here like you know I mean I can remember it like this is this is Im- we cannot underestimate the dry hump. And I think we do. I think, oh my gosh. I sometimes I tell my partner, I'm like, I just want to make out with you like we are teens and like to the point where it's like we cannot. And he's like, he's like, Are you sure you don't want to just like do? And I'm like, no, I need, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. underrated. It's like such urgency. It's like a thing you do initially when you can't do more mm-hmm. or you don't not ready to do more and there's the tension there (laughs) (laughs) yes 
Well, I have a question for you then that I that I don't know because my my children are six and seven as we record this podcast, and you know there's a lot of touching. There's um, sex assigned at birth. It's male, and there's a lot. You know, they came out like I have diaper pictures. You know, one hands up here and the other hands yeah. in the diaper. I and mean, it's they've outside been, your body. There's the, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, they've been exploring these parts for a long time. And the way that we address it is just not, it's not, I say, and I don't even know if I'm saying it's right, but I'm always like not appropriate when you're sitting next to your mom on the couch. Mm -hmm. I'm like, I know that feels really good. Go upstairs, Mm -hmm. close the door, go in the bathroom. But it's something that you should be touching yourself in privacy. And I Mm -hmm. often wonder, like, am I somehow fucking them up or putting shame around it? Because I don't want my kids, like, watching a movie on the couch next to me playing with their penises. While we watch Frozen, you know. (laughs) The the porn. The arousing (laughs) movie Frozen. Um, No, honestly... You're, you're not telling your kids not to touch themselves. You're acknowledging, hey, I know that feels good. And that is something that you do, do as much as you want, but there's a time and a place for it, which is just setting a boundary, which is just reasonable yeah. because you don't want them, you know, leaving the house and doing it somewhere where, you know, someone is going to get the wrong idea or freak out at you or something like that. So as long as the the overall message is, hey, what you're doing is normal. I know it feels good when you touch your penis, but we don't live in a world where you can do that anywhere you want. You have to touch your penis in private. Yeah. I think under that, you're also teaching them about consensual interactions, like whether you realize it or not. Like, hey, you know, if there's someone else around them and they just pull out their parts, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's not a consensual experience without, it's like, I think you don't even realize that you are doing them a benefit by saying like hey I don't feel comfortable with this right Mm -hmm. because like and so that's one of those things where they're going to take that into consideration when a lot of people don't yeah right yeah you're essentially saying like I don't consent to witness this and that is (laughs) like Colin said that's just another good message I'm not saying you're preventing them from ever sending an unsolicited dick pic but I feel like their chances are lower than some of the ones I received on dating apps against my will so I have to say a couple summers ago I was at like an ice cream stand in my neighborhood and I live in a neighborhood that I feel like is is very full of like hippie style parenting there's a lot of free-range children in my neighborhood (laughs) and there was this kid waiting in line for ice cream and the amount of like he was just going to town on his penis and he was probably like seven or something or eight and my partner and I just kept looking at each other and being like oh my god oh my god oh my god like (laughs) someone I just wanted one of his parents to be like hey maybe save that for when we get home yeah But nobody ever intervened. See, you know, it's hard because it's like we don't want to do this, the extreme of the this or the extreme of that. But, you know, the the people listening to this podcast who are pregnant, have small kids, that type of thing, like puberty come is going to come real quick, right? Oh, yeah. And like I'm not even near puberty with mine and we're still having these conversations. We're having conversations about their gender. We're having conversations about their sexuality. We're having conversations about all of it, you know, yeah. all of the hard things are early on so that hopefully we're trying to make like puberty like 
I don't know. I have this dream that like puberty is going to be easy or something. Well, you are laying the foundation that will teach your kids that you are the person they can come to and that they can ask mom questions and that they're not going to get in trouble if they have curiosity and that topics aren't off the table. So, you know, I think a lot of us think of a sex talk as like one event that happens around puberty, but one of my favorite sex therapists, her name's Dr. Tina Shermer Sellers. She says that like having good sex ed with your kids is about 100 minute long conversations, not 100 minute long conversation. And I love every time she says that I'm like, so yeah, every little interaction you have with your sons where you're like, oh yeah, like this is, you know, this is what happens when mom gets her period or whatever, you know, whatever little things they learn along the way, they're not going to be in the dark. And then suddenly at 12, you're like, here's a book and I'm never going to talk to you about anything. <laughs> about it again. Yep. Well, and right. I think it's really important because you're keeping them safe from misinformation. So like, you know, like all my friends tell me that I'm going to be the one that has the sex talk with their kids because Aunt, Aunt Coco will let them talk about whatever they want. But like, you're, you know, when they have a reputable source to go to, like, you know, how Heidi, we tell all our clients like that we're their Google filters for like that, you know, they look up things about pregnancy and we're like, that's inaccurate and not evidence-based. Totally. But it's like when, when children and adolescents and even adults feel like they have a reputable source to get information from it keeps them safe it keeps them from experimenting in ways that aren't healthy it keeps them if they need to have a discussion about a post encounter right like a lot of the shame and stuff that comes with that is you know in religions especially where you're brought up with you're supposed to have your virginity and, and only heteronormative sex and those things like if someone is abused or someone is has an altercation or something happens and they feel like that virginity is in such a high pedestal a lot of times those things aren't reported i'm really like open to dialogue about that stuff from a young age, I think is one of those things that a lot of parents need to hear, like, is what keeps your kids safe. Keeps them yeah. safe. And if they know that their bodies belong to them and that other people can't touch them without asking and that they can't touch other people without asking. And if they know the real names for their genitals, they will have the language to like, to speak up, to talk about something that may have happened to them. Um, kids that have zero of that stuff are very vulnerable. They are very vulnerable to predators, unfortunately. Yeah. So I know, you know, parents can't control literally everything that goes on in the world, but arming your child with language around their bodies and language around consent is like doing them the biggest favor. Yep. And I think that this starts from the time you have a baby and that they can understand what you're saying. So like, even though, you know, I'm I'm not the greatest parent in the world, but I try to have like a few wins. And like some of the wins that I had with my two were permission to touch. So there were re there are, have been reasons when your parents that you need to touch and look at their anus and look at their yeah. foreskin and look at their penis, you know, and from the time they could say yes or no, I, you know, probably around one year old, if we had to go in the diaper and move the foreskin, I would say like permission to touch. Mommy needs to do this. Same thing with going to the pediatrician for the annual well visits. Yeah. Didn't really think about the fact that my seven-year-old wasn't going to want a female pediatrician, but mm -hmm. this is the situation we're in now. Like 
same pediatrician for seven years, we're probably going to have to switch. But like where the pediatrician says, you know, that's our language, permission to touch. And we've never used a word to talk about a genital other than penis and vagina and anus or rectum. You know, like that yeah. all those words are, you know, they're, you know what, I'm thinking I don't have an actual word for balls other than I say balls. Balls are balls. Everyone knows yeah. what balls are. <laughs> I feel like, like a five-year-old saying like, scrotum is just really funny. funny. <laughs> so you like, know they wouldn't be able to pronounce it properly. That would be the yeah, but if they come home and say like someone touched my balls and I didn't want them to, I'm like, okay, that's I'm gonna understand what that that yeah. means, you know, over here. Um, okay, I, I'm working like kind of backwards from where I wanted this conversation to go, but it's happening organically, which is awesome. So like, I love like sitting here on some of these parenting tips of like all the things you just said, Erica, about like a 100 one minute conversations and being open and, you know, using the correct language, that kind of thing. I mean, I think these are things that maybe we have a one-year-old, but these are things that we can start thinking about right now, because I'm telling you seven years old happened in a blink and puberty is going to happen in a blink. And then going out there and trying to help our children have healthy sex lives is going to be in a, in a blink. But that's only half of this conversation I wanted to have today. The other half is on the healthy sex of ourselves with our partners, adolescence, adulthood, and then before, during, and after maybe pregnancy, loss, and in marriages. So mm -hmm. can we talk about that a little bit? Can I say something that's very yeah. interesting? Mm -hmm. Heidi first of all, soup's proud of you. So Erica, I always bring up sex like way more graphically and blatantly than Heidi does. And she always gets like a little, like, she's always like, oh, Colin, that was bold. But so like <laughs> I've started doing in some of our postpartum visits, like we've had clients reach out to us about, you know, the first time they have sex afterwards. And the reason I'm tying this in is because I'll say to them, like, have you thought about trying it with yourself first to see what feels good to see if penetration or just if it's external stimulation what yeah. those things feel good you know before bringing in your partner right, right. and a lot of them are like i never even thought of that well, yeah. and it makes me and it's it's one of those things that like we think about you know it's so firmly planted that we think that there's like an appropriate place and time of when to touch our bodies mm. and it's like you know so many of them will be like that made such a difference. I realized what felt good and what didn't feel good. And I'm like, cool. Now you can also show your partner. This yeah. is what feels good on me. This is what doesn't feel good. But it's interesting that like, I, you know, we always talk about sex and typically there's some form of that or simulation to have a baby. Right. And some, and it's one of those things where, you know, our, our, a lot of our clients are still uncomfortable to it, even though they've gone through that whole process in pregnancy and someone's typically seen them give birth and those things that they're like, oh, I'm still kind of nervous to have them see my vagina and my vulva or my penis in a, you know, in a seductive way and, and with my, me talking about it. And I'm like, but this is all just happened with your reproductive organs. I don't really understand like where that, you know, but it's because of the shame usually. Absolutely. I, I mean, we, we have such a, high standard in our brains that we should always be performing to this sexual standard of like the most virile 25 year olds at all times <laughs> and that our genitals should look just like they did you know at the peak of our 
I keep going back to like, a, you know, in our twenties or something. And like, that is such an unrealistic thing. You're not going to jump right back into sex and just like go to pound town when you've just given birth. <laughs> like, yeah. People are focused on getting back to, you know, getting back to some level that for a lot of us isn't even realistic anymore. Um, but touching yourself first is the best idea. And it sounds like a lot of patients are probably very used to focusing on their partner. And I want to get back to what my partner wants to do. And, you know, I, I, my partner has needs and I want to make sure that they can be met without reflecting on their own ability first. Yeah. So let's hang out. I, we got to hang out on this topic because pregnancy has such a profound impact on sexuality during the pregnancy in the postpartum period. And then it's like, fucking breastfeeding and pumping and then like three kids and then like sex changes right so like I want to put it out there right like sex changes it's gonna change sometimes it dries up but I wanted to I like some of the questions that I have on here boom boom boom, boom rapid fire are about that exactly and so um when like we're having all this sex often to try to get pregnant, even if we're not in a cis hetero relationship, because as we know, even if we're doing IVF or IUI, having stimulation and an orgasm right after like the transfer increases your chances of actually getting pregnant, right? So it's really important that like, even if you're doing IUI or IVF because you're a fertility client or you're not identifying as just like a cis hetero with penetrative you know, sex and all of the fertility that comes with ease, right? We know that like being intimate and having orgasms, it brings your cervix forward. It like increases that the vascular, it just helps you get pregnant, right? And so we're so focused on all this like sexual activity often to like get pregnant and then you get pregnant and then you feel like shit. And you're tired and this is like, I'm going to go first trimester. You're tired. You feel like shit and your hormones change. And like you said, a lot of times it becomes about guilt and shame because I'm like, well, my partner's used to having sex with me two to three times per week. And I like having sex with my partner two to three times per week, but I don't want to have sex mm-hmm. anymore. Right. So I was hoping you might be able to give some words to help those people feeling that way articulate to their partners how they're feeling and then what what do we do about it right like how do you talk to your partner about promoting maybe a healthy sex life with themselves all alone or creativity so anyway I was just thinking like if you were faced with a client that's in their first trimester of pregnancy and feeling real poopy and doesn't want to have sex and maybe doesn't want to have sex throughout their pregnancy at all. What Mm -hmm. advice would you give to them and their partner? So first of all, I mean, we always kind of come back to communication being one of the most important parts of sex. And that's absolutely what would need to happen here. Um, There aren't really necessarily magic words to say to your partner to get them to understand this. But my hope is that these folks have partners that are caring and respectful and will listen and respect their boundaries because it will need to be communicated clearly. Like I don't, I don't feel as sexy 
this is why, pretty obvious reasons. Um, and then I would kind of solicit from their partner, like what does that partner kind of need to feel like they have had some kind of minimum of intimacy met, even if it's not like penetrative sex? Like, if do you still want to feel like we're connecting on some level? And how many nights a week or how many times a month do you want to have this kind of connection? And know that it doesn't always have to be a penetrative sexual experience. So I would probably encourage both partners to think more expansively about what sex and intimacy could look like during this period. And if it's like, if one, you know, the pregnant partner is like, I absolutely don't want this type of sex, but I think that having these, doing these things might feel good to me. All of that needs to be on the table. Cause I think we define sex so narrowly, most people, um, especially like cis hetero people. It's just like penis and vagina and that is sex. And if you don't want to have sex, and that might just mean you you don't want to have that specific act, but there are people that will be like, well, then then it's a done deal. Then we're not going to do anything. And that's so limiting. There are so many other things that we could be doing together as couples that might feel really good and might feel really pleasurable and also um, foster intimacy as well. It's so true. Colin and I have this conversation similar to that, what you just said with our clients in the the very end of the third trimester because seminal fluid is so rich in prostaglandins, which are a key hormone in helping the body go into labor and soften the cervix. But we literally say things like, don't think of it as like penis and vagina penetrative sex because a lot of the dudes are like, I don't want my penis to touch my baby's head. I'm going to hit the baby's head. I Yes. Like, could I you look up saying, an anatomy fucking book? I always <laughs> just say, we just need the stuff. So like there's, we just need them to finish inside you. So like, yeah. even if it's not a romantic moment, like that no, part, you know, what just jerk it for a while. And then yeah, I, was, I, was saying, I don't think any, any cis hetero male or any, any person in general has ever had a trouble being like, I want to hold off my orgasm even longer. You yeah. know what I mean? I'm like, I'm sure they can finish up pretty quickly and get this moving if they need to. Yeah. Yes. So Be we a sample of those hormones. That's what we say to all of our doula clients. We're like, just do whatever you need to do alone or together. But like the finishing thing needs to like happen, you know, to get that like semen all the way up towards the cervix and just for for those women that are listening that we're laughing about this because the three of us innately understand anatomy but if that is confusing to you there is a cervix a big thick cervix okay there you're no partner is penis is going to be hitting the top of your baby's head unless you're having penetrative sex while pushing right okay so like, which which maybe an orgasmic birth, Colin's trained in orgasmic birth. I always tell people like your cervix is, is closed unless you were like, you know, it might open a teeny tiny bit to let some fluid or discharge out. It's going to dilate when you're pregnant or if you're having a termination. But other than that, it's it's the teeny tiniest little opening and no penis is, is getting in there. <laughs> no, no penis is getting in there. Oh my gosh. I just... Love it. It is wonderful. Okay. 
So, um, so on this note though, where we're, we're just simply, you know, as we're simplifying it right to like communication and, and exploration and these kinds of things, but I'm going to, I'm going to just be totally transparent with my own personal journey because this is what I do on this podcast. Everybody knows everything, right? So I had this like big, rich history of sexual experience with like lots of people. And I think that I learned about my sexuality from the partners that I was with, right? Like I had some partners that would just seem to be more experienced than I was. And so then they brought that experience to our relationship. And then I was able to bring that to the next relationship and so on and so forth. Right. So I would say like in my high school and, 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 college and especially after college, it kind of like ramped up with like the fun sexual experiences was a lot of getting to know, like, I didn't know what I liked until almost someone like did it to me. Does that make sense? Like I wasn't out there exploring my sexuality all on my own. It was like, oh, I'm having sex with this person and they're doing this thing. And that's amazing. Now I want everyone to do that thing. Right. And that's how I, I kind of developed my own sexuality. Then I got married and I got married to someone without a lot of sexual experience. And, you know, we, I found myself in a teaching role. I didn't When want, the student becomes the master. <laughs> right. I found myself in a teaching role in my marriage and that was uncomfortable for me. It really was. And so right away I was pregnant and then I found myself backing off from like, I didn't like being in a teaching role or in like a dominant role. It wasn't comfortable for me. Later, my whole audience knows later, all of this made sense, right? It turns out that my husband was actually a transgender woman and really uncertain about their uh, own gender and sexuality. And so that now at all years later makes sense as to why like the lack of experience and um, intuition on needs and that type of thing. But I found myself in this role I didn't want to be in. So then I got pregnant. So then guess what we did? Just not have sex. <laughs> it was like easier for me to just like avoid it, right? And yeah. I'm saying this story because this is going to be a lot of listener stories, right? Like maybe they're married, maybe they're not married, maybe they're in an okay, okay marriage, whatever it is. Um, and, and communication isn't, so they just, they just don't have sex. And then mm -hmm. months and months and months and months go by, right? Years go by. Yeah. Now, time goes by, the harder it is to reinitiate because it just feels weird. Yeah. So that I'm glad you use that word reinitiate because, you know, I didn't go an entire pregnancy without having sex. Like we did have sex and we had sex at the end and, you know, all of the things. But the sex that I had in my marriage during pregnancy and then subsequently nursing and postpartum was very different than the fulfilling amazing sex that I had, let's say with like sometimes strangers or huh? so in my 20s. Yeah. And so what I wanted to tackle with that personal story was reinitiating mm -hmm. after pregnancy or after birth. And then not just reinitiating, but initiating in a marriage, the exploration of sexuality. Right. Like 
Does that make sense? Like here I was open and doing it all and then something shut me down. I don't think you were, I think in your, what you're saying though, is it's interesting. You're like, your, your moments that you learned were partner driven. So you never really were like when you were having sex with, into, you know, strangers or people you knew, whatever, like they taught you things. You weren't like, hey, I mean, you weren't really expressing your needs even then, right? And so I think, and so I think it's very interesting, like that shift of you weren't expressing your needs later on, you know what I'm saying? But I think it's very easy to tell someone like, hey, you're rubbing my clit the wrong way when you know you're not going to see him for coffee in the morning and for the rest of your life. You know what I'm saying? Like you care a little bit less about their feelings and their emotional sensitivity to say those sorts of things. Than when they're know? the parent of your children, you know? Yeah, like, you know what I mean? Like you're much less likely to call your bestie and be like, my husband's a terrible lay than to be like, you know, this rando I met sucked in bed. Yeah. But the why I'm getting at this is because so many of our clients will say you need to have sex, right, to go into labor. And they'll call back right afterwards when their partner's on the phone and say, like, we ha- we haven't had sex this entire pregnancy. Like, he will not have sex with me. Or I don't want to have sex. And so I think this conversation of reinitiation is really important. So I'm going to leave it there, Erica. Like, what yeah. do you think are some good tips to reinitiate because it can be so fucking awkward if you haven't had sex for a year right oh yeah yeah. I mean this is (laughs) are you all familiar with Esther Perel yes so I might have brought Esther up when Heidi you and I talked last year I don't remember if I did or not but Esther Perel has written an incredible book called Mating in Captivity and it's all about how that spark that makes us like want to do it all and want to try it all and have a lot of sex is not a thing that naturally stays alive throughout long-term relationships and the kind of events like, you know, the intimacy of experiencing pregnancy and birth with people over, you know, that you've been with for a long time and that it's, we have made it again, like created this kind of unrealistic standard that that, that urgency for sex in the spontaneous arousal is just going to happen to us all the time, um, forever and ever until, you know, until death do us part. It is a fantasy, <laughs> unfortunately. And that is the thing that I, I like, I kind of hate to break it to people, but I also think it's relieving to know that in a way, because I know a lot of people are like, but you know, we used to like do it so much when we were younger, when we first met, and now it's like, it's infrequent. And they think that means there's something personally wrong with them and their sex life. When in reality, that is how it goes for most of us. Um, And Esther talks a lot about how like never before in history did the person that, you know, you have hot sex with in your youth was supposed to be your hot sex everything forever and ever until you die because people didn't live that long. (laughs) And now we're like, we want to keep doing it the same at the same rate with the same intensity with the same spark. And I think first acknowledging that that is not something that happens organically can be really helpful so that people don't feel shame so that people don't feel like there's something wrong with them. So what you're describing is like, you know, the sex dropping off during pregnancy or sex dropping off postpartum or the longer you've been together, that is more the norm than it is the exception. 
So I think people are out here thinking everyone else is having great sex and it's still passionate. And they're just kind of like, oh, I have a dirty little secret. I don't want to do it as much anymore when that's, that's not true. So it, it actually takes intention to keep a sex life alive long-term and to keep a sex life alive during significant life changes. And that intention often, I mean, it definitely involves partners in a relationship being on the same page. Like, do you want to have more sex? Would you like to be having more sex? Yes. How can we do this? Um, Because if we wait for the desire to spark itself, we're going to be waiting for a long time. So it might involve like actual planning, like, hey, let's get together and, you know, we're going to clear our schedules or clear this night and we're just going to, we'll start by making out. Or maybe we'll like watch a porn together if that's your thing or, you know, a sexy movie or even start talking about like how hot it was when we did X, Y, Z, like, you know, conjuring up your own past memories with your partner can be super hot too. Like you don't have to rely on actors for that. Um, But, but I mean, the main thing is that it does take work. And sex isn't, you know, work isn't sexy. People tend to think that it's just gotta, you just have to like spontaneously get aroused. And that's the only way that sex is really good. But that is that is not true. And if we want to continue to have fulfilling and active sex lives through a long-term relationship and through these big life changes, it does take intentional work and like working through those moments of awkwardness. Because maybe if two people haven't had sex for nine months, getting it started is going to feel weird. But then once it's going, it, it tends to keep propelling itself. So just, you got to kind of break the seal, break the awkwardness seal. And then hopefully it'll, you know, you'll be like, oh yeah, I'm really glad we did that. And the more sex you have, the more it tends to, you know, like it perpetuates wanting more. So yeah, it is not easy. (laughs) That is the bottom line. I love the way that you phrase that though. It makes it seem more um, approachable to just say, we're going to have to do this with intention. It's not just going to be something that's like a spontaneous arousal that just happens when, just because you're six weeks postpartum. Right. No, I'm not going to suddenly feel the same burning desire I felt for my partner when we had known each other for a month and I just could not wait. You know what I mean? Right. So much is different. Yeah. I have a question on, because you mentioned porn. Do you have resources that you refer to for ethically sourced pornography? Yeah, absolutely. Um, It's interesting. I'm glad you brought this up because the word ethical in the porn world is, is kind of like, it's a little bit meaningless at this point, kind of like the way the word organic is when it comes to food. Like who knows what's organic? Does everyone agree what organic means? But there are some sites that, advertise very intentionally that they um, have great working conditions for their their performers and they're well-paid and they're cared for and they only choose which partners they want to be with and what they want to do together. There are several sites that I send people to when they are looking for that kind of porn. The first one is Belessa and it is spelled B-E-L-L-E-S-A and they like to call themselves the Netflix of ethical porn. Um, You can even like sign up and you get a subscription and then you don't, you know, you don't have to look around. They source the the good stuff for you. Um, There's also a website called Make Love Not Porn. And that is 
folks, like real people just uploading clips that they want to share. So you're not seeing actors in, in kind of forced, uncomfortable situations. You're seeing like real couples that know each other who are like, hey, we're hot. <laughs> Let's share it with the world. <laughs> so those are two off the top of my head. Now, as someone who founded and runs Purity Culture Dropout and all of the mm-hmm. things that come with purity culture, including an, a very strong anti-porn movement, which is unrealistic, right? We just talked about I'm raising two boys. There's a lot of people on here. It, You know, I have talked to my partner over and over again about I don't want, I don't, I'm stuck, right? My gut feeling is that introducing them to not introducing them to porn. How do I say this? Allowing them to have a conversation with us about their wantingness to watch porn and giving them something like Balesa or Make Love Not Porn, you know, websites. These are things that we talk about, right? Like as parents, do you do you shut it down? Like, no, you shouldn't be watching porn. This is not something we should be promoting. Or is it like, that's not realistic. They're getting they're getting ads for KY Jelly on YouTube Kids app. Okay, like YouTube's got it all sorts of all sorts of fucked up, right? Like um I'm like, okay, no YouTube Kids even the app. It's not the advert the content is good, the advertisements are misplaced, right? Yeah. So, essentially what I'm saying is is everything for 20 years that you've studied and that you know, you know, do you think Pornography is healthy. It is an incredibly nuanced thing. And I have I have some general talking points that I'm happy to share. And then resources specifically for parents who need to get out ahead of these conversations with their kids. Awesome. So the thing about, you know, porn is porn has existed since every society that has had like written or you know, drawing communication. So it's not going away anytime soon. It just gets more and more advanced as technology gets advanced. One of the fascinating things I remember learning in grad school is with each new invention of like communication technology, it was used for porn first. So like when they invented like the letterpress, like people were making porn on it instantly. And of course the the telephone and the internet. So so yeah, it's it's never gonna go away. Um, But the thing that's different now is how easily available it is to everyone. And I always say, like, Heidi, when you and I were kids, you had to find someone's Playboy in the woods or like someone's brother's VHS tape, right? (laughs) Like you didn't have a handheld device in which it could just pop up at any moment. So the important thing, I think, is to know it's never going to just disappear and that we need to have literacy around it. And Porn literacy is a very specific thing. If you want to read about it, you can find all kinds of information online, but it really is giving people real information such as these are actors, this is fantasy, sex doesn't look this way for everybody, uh, bodies don't always look this way, bodies don't always perform this way. These Think of it as like stunt actors. You know, you see action movies and you know that like people aren't doing the shit that The Rock does in real life. You know, they're not like jumping out of buildings and then landing perfectly on a helicopter pad. Like that's not happening. And porn is the same way. Like you see a lot of things being done that are interesting to look at, but don't tend to be what what people do all the time in real life. So telling people, especially kids, like you, you are probably going to come across 
content online, either yourself or your friend is going to show you, that is obviously for adults. It's not made for kids. It may be confusing to you. If you ever see something like that, I want you to come to me and tell me and we can talk about what you saw. And I feel like based on what you've said, Heidi, you probably have that kind of relationship with your kids already. It's like, if you see something that you don't understand, I want you to come to me and we'll talk about it. And just informing kids, like, this isn't for kids. This is adults. Um, It's the way adults entertain each other. You're not in trouble if you come across it, but it isn't, it isn't realistic. And I don't want you to think that like women are like this all the time. Or, and if you have questions about sex, um, the best place to get answers from them or for those questions is to come to me. Yep. Interestingly enough, my seven-year-old already came across something uh, via YouTube Kids, an app. Like, I think it's the most dangerous app on the planet. Um, But he had a lot of questions. And thankfully, you know, my sister's gay. Their parent is trans. Like, we have a lot of conversations about gender and sexuality in our household. But my child's first visual experience of sex was between two men. So I will be curious to see like how that memory, I hope this podcast episode just gets buried somewhere. (laughs) You know, kids are listening to it 10 years from now. Right. When they're 17, like shit, mom, why did you, you know, or the memory. Oh yeah, that did happen, you know, but I mean, it's. Um, it's the reason I asked the question is because, you know, I feel like I'm still a new parent. I mean, I have a kindergartner and a first grader and I have trouble with understanding in their electronic devices, what's safe and what's not safe. And the reality is, is none of it's safe because even when I'm right next to them and safeguarding them on YouTube, parental control, like YouTube kids with all the parental controls, some hacker came in at the end of a, you know, it looks like it's a Peppa the Pig and then you click on it and it is um, two men having sex. And so anyway, yeah. I want to make sure that I ask that question because if I'm thinking this, there are other parents out there 100%. struggling with how to have these conversations and start these conversations and what is healthy and not healthy, right? Yeah. So. And the resource that I cannot plug enough is Sex Positive Families. They're an organization that is um, the go-to authority in all this stuff. Um, they're founded by a wonderful like sex educator and social worker who's also a parent. And the, the whole point of the organization is to raise children with no shame and with the proper education around sex so that it's a normal part of their lives. And Sex Positive Families has done an entire series on the porn talks, like, how do you do this? What do you say? I mean, they will give you word by word, the script. Um, There's a webinar they sell on it. So I cannot recommend enough to families who are, who are worried about how this is going to come up because it's absolutely going to come up. I mean, the, the average age that a child does first see pornographic content is before 10. And that's not, you know, necessarily because they're on going and looking for it. It's because it just, pops up, like you said. So mm-hmm. getting out ahead of these conversations before they see it is the best practice here, not kind of waiting until they come to you. Yeah. Now I stalk you on Instagram. So <laughs> as we close here, I wanted to make sure that we gave you some time to really talk about your business and your courses and what you teach online so that my listeners 
could have their interest peaked right now and say, I really want to take one of Erica's courses. So could you just spend a couple minutes talking about how to find you on Instagram and what upcoming webinars or courses that you have that you would like to share about? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so my, um, my, my business is Erica Smith Education and Consulting. And underneath that, I do a lot of different things. I am available for speaking engagements, uh, trainings on any kind of sexuality topic. I very much specialize in LGBTQ stuff, adolescent health, adolescent sexuality, and purity culture. I was like, wait, what's the, the big thing I'm missing is purity <laughs> culture. So I do, you know, trainings for organizations, speaking gigs. I also sometimes teach sex ed at various schools around here that invite me in, which is very fun. And through my business, I have the purity culture dropout program. And that is where I offer one-on-one -on -one sessions to speak to anybody about a sexuality topic that they might be struggling with. And that can include you know, what you're saying here, like, how do I get the spark back in my relationship? Or what if my partner comes out while we're dating? Or I just got diagnosed with HPV and I'm freaking out. Like any kind of sex ed topic, I will give you information and support and education around. And if I think it's outside of my wheelhouse, I'm super honest about that. I also offer intensive one-on-one -on -one work where I have people work with me for like six to 10 sessions. And these are the folks that feel like they really need to undo the purity culture stuff in their lives. And that is the one-on-one -on -one purity culture dropout program. I have webinars that are for purchase on my website. One is called Basic Sex Ed 101. One is called How to Communicate with Your Partners. One is called Casual Sex and Dating for Purity Culture Dropout. So a lot of times folks are like, I was told that marriage was the only thing I could do, but I kind of just want to date and I don't know how to do it. So that's, um, it's a very popular class. I just did a class called Your First Time, Everything You Need to Know for Your Sexual Debut. And that is specifically geared towards people that consider themselves older virgins. Okay. And I'm about to teach a class in February for folks who are coming to terms with their LGBTQ identities who were raised in the church and feel like they don't know where to do or where to go, what to do, how to think about it. and. Yeah, that's the bulk of my work. I have a sexual values workbook that is for sale. Oh, and I also co-authored a book called Sex Q&A for parents. So I collaborated with my friend, Erin Brown, and she is a parent. So she based questions on things her kid has actually asked her and she gives her mom answer. And then I give my sex educator perspective alongside her. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> I can send the two of you the PDF of that book if you would like. I would be happy. Yes. To send and where can our audience purchase it? Yeah. Um, yeah. My website is purityculturedropout.com. And, and my Instagram is at ericasmith.sex.ed. And Erica is spelled with a C. Okay. And they you can buy your book on your website mm -hmm. too. Yeah. Excellent. So, Colin, do you have any lingering questions for Erica before we let her go? No, I just, I mean, really thank you. And I think just from like the conversations, Heidi, you have with your kiddos and like Erica, the openness you do, like that you give and the education and the resources is just so important, you know, as someone that has been through a non-accepting experience and then come out on the other side. It's just the value that both of you bring is huge. So thank you. 
thank yeah. you. It was a pleasure to see you again, Heidi, and to yeah. meet you. I appreciate you being on the Birth Story podcast. Thank you for being part of the Birth Story family and listening to this episode. On Tuesdays every week, our doula diaries, little snippets and tidbits from my week, along with some teaching and education. And then on Thursdays, we meet here for our birth stories and our expert speakers. So thank you for being here and listening to the podcast twice a week. And if you are left wanting more, like Heidi, I've listened to all the episodes, I've read your entire book, then I hope you will meet me in Birth Story Academy and let me be your online childbirth educator to prepare you for your hospital birth, no matter what that looks like. Thank you for listening to Birth Story. My goal is you will walk away from each episode with a clear picture of how labor and delivery might go and that you will feel empowered by the end of your pregnancy to speak up, plan and prepare for the birth you want, no matter what that looks like.